0: Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington, along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're going to talk with author Luis Alberto Urrea. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348, or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. And before we get uh, started, let me give you a little background on our guests. Luis uh, just arrived after a drive from Chicago. He made it in here about two minutes before the show started, so we haven't had a lot of time to visit, but I'm looking very, very much forward to this uh, conversation today. Luis is the author of 11 works of fiction. You just completed your 12th, is that
1: Sure. I'm, I'm working on I'm
0: working one. On, working uh, on your so flight. I'm on the 13th, 13. I guess. When you're not flying, you're writing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <Right. laughs> These are our works of fiction, nonfiction, short stories and poetry. In 2005, he was a Pulitzer Prize finalist and American Book Award winner for his book The Devil's Highway. His bestseller, The Hummingbird's Daughter, is the fictionalized account of his great aunt's life during the Mexican Civil War. He's going to be speaking tonight at the Buzzkirk Chumley Theater, 7 o'clock, as a guest of the Friends of the Library. His talk is called Magical Realism, Immigration, and Life on the Border. So that's the intro. Welcome. (laughs) Thanks, Bob. Thanks for being here. Um, The the book that... um, that we're going to talk about a little bit today. The Devil's Highway is uh, the one that you were a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize uh, with, and that's the account of 26 men trying to cross the Mexican border into the desert of southern Arizona in uh, the year 2001. Um, If you just read the beginning page of Devil's Highway, you'll not want to let it go. It's (laughs) it's a gripping – it is a gripping beginning. It's uh, sort of horrifying actually.
1: Well, it is. It's it's – one of my editors jokingly called it the perfect dust storm you know because in in essence it's a story of of uh what they call men in peril books and in fact when i first talked to the publishing company about it it was proposed to me as a men in peril book you know this uh this terrible story where these men face these Terrible odds, and many of them die a grisly death. but what they wanted was for the book to function as a kind of Trojan horse, in that you you show this drama, you show this tragedy, but you also try to teach the American reading public what is going on mm-hmm. on the border and what some of the border milieu is about, you know mm-hmm. so um, that was a really interesting challenge for me. Uh-huh.
0: So did you uh, take their challenge and sort of adjust it to the way that you wanted to tell the story? Well,
1: you know, it was weird because uh, I didn't know how to approach it really, and they didn't really have anything in mind. They just said, write the perfect Luis book, and I thought, <laughs> wow, really? Whatever I want. And then you, where do you go from there if you write the perfect— Yeah, what do you book? do? Yeah. You know? and. Uh, I really didn't know how to approach it. Like I said, and one of the things I, I I knew I had to do was to get close to the border patrol, mm-hmm. and um, you know I, I think I had a lot of ingrained prejudice about the border patrol. Um, you know I, I was born in Mexico, raised in the U.S. I, I won't indict anybody, but I I might have family members who came over here illegally, possibly. Um, <laughs> and uh you know so i went i went into that not quite knowing what what i would find and they really weren't interested in having me come in their world and write about them hmm. and uh you know at the time it didn't occur to me that this was such a controversial story but it was the largest single death event on the border to date um it was the largest Border Patrol manhunt and rescue in history to date and it was an ongoing trial civil lawsuit and investigation Uh, and at the same time, the Tucson sector of the Border Patrol was under investigation for some misbehavior by some of their agents. All that being said, the other thing that didn't really occur to me was that if you go to any kind of police station in the world, and walk in and tell the beat cops, "Hey, pal, I'm going to come in and write a book about all your secrets." Okay? Yeah, right. <laughs> They're going to say, "No, not okay." Um, and they they didn't they were not interested. And it took four months of courting, mm-hmm. um, and I was really lucky. You being an editor, mm-hmm. my, my wife's an investigative journalist. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Okay. And uh, when I was denied over and over again, I, I took the poet's recourse, which is to go in your room and put on some Black Sabbath records really <laughs> loud and you know, moan and groan. But she did what reporters do, are trained to do, which is face the opposition and keep at them. Mm-hmm. And so she started calling around the country and just by happenstance called Yuma, Arizona. And the Yuma Border Patrol Station guy said, Yeah, send him down. We thought, wait a minute, we've been denied by Tucson, we've been denied by the by the Washington Bureau, we've been denied by all of them, and these guys in Yuma said sure. So we thought, wow, we better get down there before they realize their yeah. mistake and stop me. Yeah. And I went down there and uh it was a very interesting experience. You know, it took a, a little bit of hazing for them <laughs> to let me yeah. enter. And, uh, you know, it was a really—I think uh, probably one of the most stunning moments for me as a person and as a writer in my life to get close to these border patrol agents and to realize that I had—you know, I always tell people—it makes people mad, but I think it's true that there's nobody more sort of bigoted and prejudiced than a good liberal. You know, we're just more self-righteous about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went down there thinking I was going to write a book about humanity, but I had all this prejudice about the border patrol. And it would have been a terrible book if I had not been forced. And it was it was it was really an act of grace, I think, to be forced to see these guys who, for what they really were, mm-hmm. who they really were. And uh, that was a, a a miracle for me.
2: Did you ever find out why they let you into their ranks?
1: Hmm. I think because this event was so bad, it haunted these agents so much that they wanted it told. In fact, every level of help that I sought, uh, Mexican government was not necessarily eager to have people peer into their secrets either. Mm-hmm. Uh, the consular corps, the sheriff's department, all of the people who were involved in this crisis, were so disturbed by it and upset by it that they all wanted things revealed and told. And our mistake had been to go to the official channels, which mm-hmm. was go to Washington, which said, no, we really can't do this. Go to Tucson, which turned out to really not be the border patrol station that did the actual search. Mm-hmm. So these guys in in Yuma were kind of cowboys. And I mean that in the good sense of cowboys. Mm-hmm. Um, If you meet Sheriff Ogden, I'll be doing a a talk at UC Davis after Thanksgiving with the Yuma County Sheriff and he is the real deal. Cowboy, 10-foot tall, giant, lonesome dove, white mustache, 10-gallon hat. They're not going to know what to do at UC Davis (laughs) when he shows up. So they were really moved and and the interesting thing is when I was there with them – One of the agents said to me, look, you shouldn't even be here. You should go to Welton Station. They're the guys who actually did the rescue. But I'm going to warn you, he said, those guys are politically incorrect. And I thought, thank God. (laughs) Finally, somebody might talk to me. And he took me out there to this little podunk station, 32 agents. Um, When I walked in there, it was like hyenas closing in on a baked ham. Those and dudes, you were the ham. I was the yeah. ham. They saw me walk in and these guys started to rise from their various desks with these smiles of, oh, my God. we're Fresh gonna, meat. Yeah, we're going to tear <laughs> this guy apart. I was wearing an earring. you know. They're looking at me oh. like, oh, come here, kid. You know? And uh, they gave me a really hard time. And uh, the first agent that spoke to me was a guy named McPherson who happened to be Mexican. I didn't know he was a Mexican agent. I thought he was Italian. He had a little mustache and Agent McPherson, and he told me he if if he showed up in my book, I was not allowed to use his name. And I said, "Well, what do you want me to call you?" And he said, "Call me Officer Friendly." <laughs> 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 and I was, just, oh my God, these guys are going to kill me. And they were giving me just the worst time. And there's a supervisory agent there who's become one of my best friends in the world. Oddly enough, Kenny Smith. And he came out of the back and he was watching all this and he said, what What? What are you doing? I said, I'm trying to write this book. And Officer Friendly said, he's writing about the Yuma 14, who were the four, 14 guys who died. And I didn't know that Kenny was the supervisory agent at the time and had started the run to go save them. And he just looked at me and he said, I can help you with that. Wow. I said, come back to the control center and— the other guy said, you can't take him back there. And he said, I'm a supervisory agent. I can take him if I want to. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden by, again, grace, that's all I can imagine, he takes me into the control center and he sits me in a corner and they go back to their business. So I thought the yeah. smartest thing I can do is stay quiet and just sit here in the corner, be invisible, let them forget I'm here and just watch their world. And, mm-hmm. you know, the second day – the agent that was with him who runs the computers, a guy named Jerry Wofford, turns to me and says, So, Yuma 14? I said, Yes, sir. He said, Come here. And I moved over and he, he went to the computer and he started calling up the death scene videos oh my gosh. of each of the deaths. He took me through all 14 deaths, which was overwhelming. And I thought, I've got my material, you know. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't take notes. I'd excuse myself to the restroom yeah. and then write like crazy because I thought, you know, it's going to make people feel sure. studied. Yeah. And uh, Kenny Smith, I think we realized we really liked each other, but we were both a little cautious, obviously. And uh, he, after Wofford showed me the, the videos, he said, well, you need to actually go there. I said, I know, but it's on federal land. I, it's a, It's a bombing range, <laughs> so you can't get on there. The Marines won't let you on. And he said, well— If you can be here tomorrow at seven, I'll take you. So I came back. Uh
0: (laughs) Uh, You know, a reporter Mm -hmm. gets a shot like that. Yeah, Yeah. you don't say no. I'm not getting up till eight. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. you You say it's better for me. (laughs) Yeah, get a wake up call (laughs) because I had to
1: drive 50 miles to get to him. And sure enough, you know, he took me on the bombing range. And when we were alone, away from the station, two guys in the desert, and he starts showing his love. And his love was amazing to me because it began with a love for the land. He starts teaching me how he tracks and he starts teaching me how they can read the soil. And being a a writer and a professor of writing, I thought, my God, this guy is – he's like a critic of landscape. This guy – he started telling me how he knows what time somebody walked through. It was brilliant. And the first thing that happened was he stopped the truck and I thought I was still being razzed, OK? And he looks in the distance and he says, oh, there's nobody up in that cave. And I looked you know, and there's this little stinking rat hole five miles away. And so I laughed and I said, all right, you've got X-ray vision, right? You can see in the cave. And he said, no. He said, but I know that cave and it's not deep enough for a human body to fit in. So when people go up to that cave, they pile rocks or brush in front of the mouth to try to hide better. So if it's not round, I know there's somebody in there. Hmm. Who would have guessed yeah. that? Yeah. And uh, you know, so we're out walking around. And he's showing me all this tracking stuff and we walk on the Devil's Highway itself, which is an actual dirt road through the desert. He walks me to the Mexican border. There's nothing there. I mean unless you go and you really realize that the only thing there is maybe every few miles a little tin sign that says, don't come over here. Mm -hmm. That's it. Mm -hmm. And we start talking and I will never forget it, you know, when he finally opened his heart. And the thing that really changed the whole book for me was he said, you know, my daddy was a rancher. I'm a rancher. He said, I come down here every day and I chase ranchers and farmers. He said, so part of me really understands that I'm chasing my own people. Mm-hmm. And it began there and this incredible outpouring of humanity. You know, he 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 said at one point, a lot of people called me a jackbooted thug. He said, I am your jackbooted thug in shining armor. Mm-hmm. He said, I get up every morning and know that I have to come here and I have to do a job in which I pursue people who have broken the law by the very fact of their being here. At the same time, I come here to save civilians who are dying a horrible death and he said they're often the same people. Mm-hmm. So who – what am I when I come? Am I a rescuer or am I police? What do I do? He said it's so schizophrenic that a lot of the agents make it a point of living quite a distance from the station so that they can have – you know, get into the game and then try to get out of the game going back home. Yeah. He says it's really hard to go home and hold your daughter on your knee after a day of this stuff. You know,
0: very interesting.
1: So it was amazing. Okay. Oh yeah. Well, we'll get back to.
0: Uh, I, I want to hear more about you know that book and your process for that. We do have a phone call. The numbers again are eight five five zero eight one one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight and noon at Indiana And our phone call comes from Karen. Karen. Hello. Hello, Karen. Go ahead.
2: Well, um, I'm calling to,
0: uh, much as I enjoyed the Devil's Highway, and I'm going to enjoy hearing more about it, but I have a personal question, and um, that is that um, Mr. Urea wrote about uh, his father's diligence with um, him speaking perfect Spanish. And so the question is, are your children bilingual, and is that a goal for your family that you continue that bilingual Spanish
1: and English. Thanks, Karen. With Kara.
0: the
2: fluency.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have three kids. My two eldest kids are, are stepkids. They're teenagers. So they were already, uh, you know, fully English-speaking American kids. Um, we have a daughter who's seven, Rosario. Rosario Teresa, uh, also known as Chayo. And, uh, you know, it's it's a little difficult in that I'm the only Spanish speaker— Anywhere around us in Naperville, Illinois. <laughs> so between myself, uh, you know, her school and her interest in TV and music, she is very interested in Spanish. So uh, I'm going to try with her as best I can. Um, interestingly enough, my my. Middle daughter is now taking Spanish in school, so it 's really funny they I, you know they say hi to each other in Spanish, hola chica it's like that <laughs> which is kind of funny but you know my dad's uh my dad's i think insistence on Spanish was partially a product of a war between him and my mom, my mom being American, and they had a terrible uh marriage that had fallen apart and so we had this armed camp. Um, you know, one half of the apartment was always Mexican and the other half was American and they slept in different rooms and so, you know, I have a natural affinity for this border stuff because I was not only born <laughs> there but raised, you know, on the border <laughs> fence between Mexico and the United States even in my living room.
0: Yeah. You're, you're, um, your father was Mexican. Your mother was American. Yeah. You lived in Tijuana. Yeah. Know, when you were young. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 They uh, – she was actually—I'll talk about this tonight some, but you know, she she had come back from World War II. She'd been a Red Cross lady, and mm-hmm. you know, basically had fled New York City and gone to Sausalito to live on a houseboat, as many post-war people did. I think <laughs> after World War II, she was not quite a Beat, but more more a, a, a sort of eccentric late Victorian. And yeah. she met my dad and was whisked off to the, you know, exotic a uh, climate of Tijuana. I think she thought she was going to a hacienda, not a dirt street. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Our guest today is Luis Alberto Urea.
0: He is speaking tonight at the Buzzkirk Chumley Theater as a guest of the Friends of the Library. Uh, his talk tonight is Magical Realism, Immigration, and Life on the Border.
2: You talk in your um, your bio that you provided us. Uh, you talk about your. He
0: didn't provide that. I, I found that. Oh,
2: you right. found that. Yeah, okay. I,
0: I'm not sure he's too happy. I found it.
2: <laughs> you talk about your reticence to go back to grad school and finish up, and you finally broke down and did that. You said it right. took 20 years. What was what what was uh, standing in your way?
1: Uh, well, my my father was killed in my senior year of college, actually at the hands of the Mexican cops, and it was this horrible experience. Um, Protracted and grisly, and when it was over, I kind of made my way through the the last bits of my senior year, and I thought, "There's no way I can I can do I can't go on." Mm -hmm. Um, So I did all the kind of weird Southern California things you can do to. Get out of college. I was a movie extra. <laughs> <You know. laughs> what have you been in? <laughs> I was in the stunt man with Peter O'Toole. All right. <laughs> I was in a force of one with Chuck Norris. That was good. Anyway. Um, and uh, I was a, a, a graveyard shift clerk at 7 11 and all this ridiculous stuff. Um, but uh, in 1978, I joined a missionary group. And began working in Mexico with the poor uh-huh. and that, that you know, set fire to my entire world. And uh, I was there for years as a translator for this group. And uh, in the early 80s, through some bizarre happenstance, which I, I still don't quite understand, I was hired to teach expository writing at Harvard. So I went from Tijuana to Harvard, which was really bizarre. A <laughs> culture shock, baby. Unbelievable. Maybe? Oh, my gosh. Unbelievable. But all that, you know, it's just life intervened. And I kept thinking I was going to be a famous author. I didn't know that that wasn't necessarily going to happen immediately. And, uh, so in 1990, I realized, wow, it's been a long time and I'm not famous yet. I'm not even published yet. So maybe I'll go to grad school so I can teach English. And that's, you know, so I went back to graduate school and, uh, that's when I sold my first book. So it messed up grad school even then. I, I Just couldn't stay in school. I couldn't stay in school. <laughs> <laughs> it's too much to do. Yeah. All right. We have an email.
2: Oh, yeah, we do. Um, it begins, I tried to get into magical realism in literature many times over the years. It just doesn't speak to me and I give up. Do you have any tips for readers about learning to appreciate magical realism?
1: <laughs> magical realism. Well, you know, I don't
2: even know what magical realism yeah,
1: I'm not sure anybody really does. You know, I mean, is Ray Bradbury magical realism? One could know. make an argument or Ursula Le Guin. I don't know.
0: I don't know, but it's in the title of your uh, presentation tonight. Yeah, so. I know. Maybe you should figure out. That, that wasn't out my before. title. They, oh, okay. they
1: gave me that title. <laughs> they wanted me to give a title and I forgot, so they gave it a title. Oh, okay. Um, magical realism. I'll tell you the funny thing for me, for example, with The Hummingbird's Daughter, which is the big novel, which is much of what I'll be talking about tonight. It's a historical novel. It took me 20 years of research to write this yeah. book. Um, it's now being made into a movie, and I'm not allowed to tell you who's acting in it, unfortunately, though. Uh, I will say puss in boots if you've seen Shrek. That's obvious. <laughs> <laughs> but, um,
2: Nicely played. Thank you so much. <laughs> uh,
1: my agent would go crazy, if he, but he's in L.A. He'll never know. Anyway. Um, anyway. <laughs> You know, the thing about the book is that it seems quite magical because the woman it's about, is my great aunt. She was known as the Saint of Kaborah. And she was actually a, a midwife and a medicine woman of her tribe who began giving evidence of, of touch healing. Hmm. And uh, she was so huge and began such a movement that she, her ranch was, was the permanent camp for 10,000 pilgrims trying to get to her. So when I was working on this novel, like I said, 20 years of research, 10 years of that with shamans, medicine women, curanderas, healers. So I always tell people I spent 10 years in the library archives and then 10 years in the twilight zone Mm. with people who, you know, I mean, again, my wife being a reporter, you guys are hardheaded types, you know, and she's learned to just shrug it off. We get an email from a cousin and says, I woke up this morning levitating 18 inches above the bed. And I say, you know, <laughs> hey, honey, guess what? You know, cousin Bernie's levitating. He says, oh, yes, of course she is. <laughs> so you deal with that sort of a world and that sort of a view where anything is possible, okay? Um, when I turned in the manuscript to my publisher, they began editing out all this crazy stuff. And at a certain point, I finally had to call him in New York and say, you know what's really funny about this? This is a historical novel. Yeah, absolutely. I said, well, you're cutting all the history out. Mm -hmm. I said, the stuff that's made up is what did they eat for breakfast? Right. Mm -hmm. What kind of pants did they wear? I said, all of the amazing stuff in this is stuff that's actually witnessed and in the record. So for me, the magical realism almost doesn't fit because this is kind of the reverse. It was something full of wonders, um, and I, I have to say, I've spoken all over the country. I have a lot of friends from Indiana. I don't think the stuff in these books is that distantly removed from things that you know, and anybody knows. I people come to me and say, "Wow, I wish I had culture like that." And I say, "Really? Who, you know, what's your family roots?" Oh. You know, we're just German or we're just Irish or we're just Polish. I was, Are you crazy? You think you don't have a folk tradition? You're crazy if you don't mm-hmm. think so. Um, I think it, we could leave the studio right now and go find an old timer somewhere who would tell us some amazing cure for warts, you know, or, you know, like people can sense rain coming in their hip or there's a water witch somewhere. I think it's – I think at least for, for the terms of my book, it, it was about – understanding the and honoring the beliefs of the old-timers because they all died in the turn of the century, so they would really be old-timers if they were here now, their belief system and the way they saw the world, which was full of grace and holiness. Everything was sacred to them. Everything was sacred. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as magical realism, for example, Garcia Marquez, he tells this story, which I think is a wonderful story. He used to say, you know, When I was a little boy, there was a guy that was famous for curing cattle of worms. And so he came to do a healing and I went to see this. And he said the guy stood in front of the cow and essentially put his hand out and yelled, worms, come out. And the cow vomited the worms out. And he said, you know, once you've actually seen something like that, what's so weird about, you know, Cousin Bernie levitating, Mm -hmm. right? So I, I think it's a way to try to honor the fantastic and the dream as well as the daily reality, to take it all as part of of what's there. And I, I tend to believe that all life in a way is magic realism. I mean I don't want to be religious but I think that's how God works. I think I'm surrounded by miracles constantly. I just don't see them anymore because I'm trying to get to your radio show and hope that's – That was a miracle. Answer, Watching for yeah. cops trying yeah, not to get yeah. caught. You know, we are too busy to to see the miracles because the miracles are small. And I think sometimes those writers... Find some way to try to, to, to raise the focus on it a little bit, bring up the color a little bit like your TV. Mm-hmm. That's what I think is going on.
0: All right. Our phone numbers again, eight five five zero eight one one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight, 877-285-9348. And you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. We've hit uh, halftime in the program. Wow. Luis Alberto Urea is our guest. We'll be back for about another half an hour. Uh, you're listening to Noon Edition.
3: www.southdunnstreet.info WFIU joins arts organizations in our area as a media sponsor. The Kokomo Community Concerts present 2005 Van Cliburn competition finalist David Kabasi performing works of Schubert, Debussy, and Brahms this evening at Kokomo High School Auditorium at 7.30. The Lawrence County Concert Association presents a bluegrass concert by special consensus with their guests, the Not Too Bad Bluegrass Band, this evening at Bedford North Lawrence High School at 7.30. And Saturday evening, the Columbus, Indiana Philharmonic presents Bach to Germany under the direction of David Bowden, Bach's Mass in B minor at 7.30 at Columbus North High School Auditorium. More about these and many others on our website at wfiu.org.
0: Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from the Herald Times along with Mary Catherine Carmichael and our guest today, Luis Alberto Urea. Uh, Luis is the author of 11 works of fiction. No, he's working on his 13th work right. of fiction, nonfiction, short stories, and poetry. 2005, he was a Pulitzer Prize finalist and the American Book Award winner for his book, The Devil's Highway, which we've talked about some and we'll talk about more. Uh, his current bestseller, The Hummingbird's Daughter, is a fictionalized account of his great aunt's life during the Mexican Civil War. He'll be speaking tonight at the Buzzkirk Chumley Theater at 7 o'clock. He's a guest of the Friends of the Library and uh, based on our first half hour, I think you should rush out there and see this.
2: What a great evening.
0: All right. I, I did want to just mention uh, Teresa, your daughter. Uh, you say it, Teresa? Or, Teresa. And your great aunt had the same yes, name. Yes, is, right. is
1: your daughter named after your Yeah, career? partially. Okay. Um, she's named after my godmother, his name, uh, Rosario Garcia. Uh, we used to call her mama Chayo. Uh, Chayo is a nickname for Rosario. It's one of those odd things. S names reduce down to CH sounds. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Jesus is Chewy. Uh, okay. So people who are being familiar with God and funny, you know, yeah. call Jesus Chewy too. So <laughs> Chayo is Rosario and it's hilarious in Naperville because – they just can't figure out chayo, so people call her child. <laughs> <laughs> like we have a generic daughter, you know, with a little barcode on her. Yeah. Child. Urea. Here's our yeah. other one, kid. Yeah, right.
2: <laughs> our daughter, yeah. child, and yeah. our son, kid. Yeah,
0: you know, Louise has mentioned Naperville a couple of times. You're teaching at the University of Chicago? Currently? University of Illinois. University of Illinois. Yeah, Chicago. At Chicago in Chicago. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask you about, go back to the Devil's Highway briefly, because I'm, I'm fascinated by this story. You have 26 men mm-hmm. who try to to come into the U.S. and 14 of them wind up dead. Yeah, 12 of them live. Um, your description, you know, early on in the book of just the Devil's Highway. Yeah, I mean, that region that they were trying to go through as a a place that even the border patrol guards didn't want to go. I mean, they don't even want to go there.
1: You went in there, I assume. Mm-hmm. What's what's it like? It's beautiful. Yeah. I mean if you're Edward Abbey or somebody like that, you know, he he in fact wrote about it often. Um it's a beautiful but forbidding place and it's an ancient place. The um <clears throat> the actual path that became the Camino del Diablo uh is an ancient hunting path. It was an animal trail first <laughs> and the old tribes, the pre-conquest tribes walked through there. Um Papago, Apache, Yaki, all these tribes, Pima um, and but it's always been a very dark place. It's got a kind of an occult history. It's 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 kind of frightening in those ways. Um, I, I I talk in the book. So so many unexpected things came up for me. I found out the first white man to die on that road died in 1516. He was a Spanish conqueror, and there were no records kept of death because indigenous people didn't. Write books, But from that guy's death, Melchior Diaz, to the present, there has been a record. And there have been hundreds upon hundreds of deaths always in this same place. Um, it was one of the pathways that people headed for the gold rush, mm-hmm. for the gold mines and died. And there were Indian wars there. It's just a very eerie place. Um, and it passes through some really rugged, rugged terrain. It starts uh, east of – Tucson, and it goes all the way west to the Colorado River. Um, I know Cormac McCarthy is is hot stuff, especially with the uh, No Country for Old Men coming up. But if you ever read his novel Blood Meridian, which may be the you know most demonic novel ever, certainly one of the bloodiest novels ever written. The climax of that novel, what's it? basically a true story, happens at the terminus of the Devil's Highway, interestingly Mm -hmm. enough. So it's just always been this dark, bloody terrain. And these men really had not intended to come to the United States. I felt that Americans don't necessarily – neither do Mexicans, by the way, know what the mechanism is to bring people over. I always joke with audiences that you know, people just assume that Mexicans have some gene that goes off at like 13 and says, well, oh, must go to the United States and I know how to go. It's like migrating geese. It's not like yeah. that. And, uh, you know, people in Guadalajara know as little about the border as people right here in Bloomington. But they find out, you know, out of desperation. And these guys were in Veracruz and they were mostly – they were all, you know, subsistence level people, not doing real well. But they were – they could survive. They had little – plots of land. Most of them uh, did uh, sharecropping of coffee and the coffee prices dropped and they suddenly had nothing. And uh, Veracruz uh, historically is one of the last states in Mexico to send people north Mm. because they were making it. At least they had the coffee or the fishery to to rely on. Um, These organizations that have taken over the border now are criminal organizations structured much like the cocaine and marijuana smugglers, okay? And on a really evil level, the, the white slavers, the human trade. And they have recruiters and they call them hookers, oddly <laughs> enough. But hookers as in fishing, <laughs> enganchador. And they sent this guy, Don Moy, Moses, oddly enough, uh, into Veracruz to recruit these men. And what what the evil trick is when they recruit is that they charge this huge amount for these men to be transported the men can't obviously afford that or they'd stay home. Mm-hmm. So the criminal organization, quote, loans, makes a loan of the money to these walkers to bring them to the United States and place them in a job. And then they have to repay their debt. And it's, you know, it's, it's at a high interest rate. These are men who've never had a credit card. And suddenly they're paying 15 to 20 to 25 percent interest compounded monthly. They don't know what that means. Mm-hmm. And so they get to these places to work and find out that they are now slaves to the organization that brought them, which is what these guys basically fell into. They were brought north and the the guide that was going to bring them into the United States never showed. He apparently partied too hardy you know, on that Friday night, didn't show up on Saturday morning and this kid, 19-year-old kid... Uh, very macho, basically said, "I can do it. I'll lead him." And he took him and got lost. Mm-hmm. Okay,
0: eight five five zero eight one one eight seven six. I'm sorry, eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight, and noon at Indiana I, you know, you you described earlier how you had some preconceived notions about the border yeah. control, border patrol, um, that turned out to not be true. But I would also think that you, going into this, at least as you were finding out more and more about what actually was happening, that these people are not nice people that are, oh, no. are doing this. Oh, so, no. so what kind of, um, you know, what kind of, I don't know, fear did that bring to you? Did you get into into dangerous situations? Oh yeah, yeah.
1: they they should be happy that I'm not king, <laughs> <laughs> because there would be heads on spikes if I were king. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it was very odd because, you think of yourself as boring suburban dad with the kids and. Driving the kids to school, we we live on Leave It to Beaver Street, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Seriously, walk the little girl to the bus stop, and there's a wild turkey that lives on our street. So all the neighbors take care of the turkey. So he's watching us from behind the neighbor's house. And there's a friendly FBI guy who drives off to work, and everybody waves at the FBI. It's it's honestly Beaver Cleaver could live on our street. Then you find yourself down here in the desert with these maniacs, you know, who are. Doing things to people, you would not believe the level of evil, and it is evil what they're doing to people. And I'm not going to say every coyote is like that because they're not. There are guys who take pride in whatever it is they do, but there are so many low down, wicked, evil people living off suffering and pain. And you know, if you're sick, they will leave you to die. You know, they do things that. Uh, i can't even repeat on the air so yeah that's that's really disconcerting, and during the year I investigated this story, I was told three times I would be killed and how are you how were you told how did you get those messages f- warnings from law enforcement uh-huh. interestingly yeah um,
2: did they own law enforcement did they oh no people off?
1: oh well, I'm sure they do you know somebody once said to me, if you were a border patrol agent, you're making whatever salary. And some guy steps up to your van and says, I have 100 people here and I'll give you $500 each to not look for 20 minutes. What would you do? Hmm. I thought, wow. And at the time, I thought this was really incendiary anti-Border Patrol rhetoric until I found out that the Border Patrol agents are routinely ordered not to catch people they will head for a place they know there are people and they're told, "Oh no, today you just go over here." And they will tell the boss, "But wait a minute, we caught 1200 people here this weekend and there'll be more." And they say, "No, you've got to." Knowing full well what that means, go elsewhere. So there's a there's a huge this you know all the agents I've gotten to know are ironists
3: mm-hmm. and
1: slightly paranoid because they've seen a, a massive gigantic Thing going on that nobody can quite grasp, but it's beyond them and it's beyond us to understand, I think, how big this is. I've seen a letter telling them not to apprehend people because they needed pickers in the Imperial Valley. So it's this very odd dance that these agents have to do. And I have to say, you know, again, I was not only surprised by them, but I was surprised, for example, by the Mexican Consular Corps. I have family in the Mexican government, yet I had an opinion like we all do what the Mexican government must be like, yet I met these people and they were the most precise, professional, you know, with it, progressive people I've ever met and I was stunned and they have to work under the radar just like I think the border patrol agents often have to work under the radar. And uh, as the rescue people who go out and save the lost work under the radar and even the lawyers who are trying to work on this problem also. And again, at, at every level, they all wanted to share. It was, it was the most remarkable thing. And I, you know, it, it just slayed me. For example, one of the lawyers who gave me material that was priceless and no one has ever seen it but other lawyers and me. You know, he didn't have to do that, but he, he, he again, was so moved by what he had seen, he wanted to tell the story. All right,
0: 855-0811, 877-285-9348. And you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. All
2: right, this is going to strike you as a crazy question, but I just have to know your opinion on the the fence across. <laughs> <laughs>
0: the
1: fence. I can't I, help myself. I, I don't know about the fence, you know. I don't know. I'm sure you've seen this new thing where some of the mayors of Brownsville and so forth in Texas said, don't build the fence, widen the river, which I think is really interesting. <laughs> Dredge out the river. Um, you know, I, the, the fence – you're talking about almost 3,000 miles of border and you're talking about funding 700 miles of it for which they really are going to fund maybe between three and 500 miles but they could – lately have been saying well they'll be able to put up 70 miles of fence. And you know this is a multiple billion dollar operation of your tax money. It's supposed to be a double layer high-tech fence and the parts of the fence that are up have been single layer. They're not even So you've got about 30 miles of single layer chain link fence part of which in Arizona was put up by undocumented workers. i.e. illegal aliens built it. Now, in Texas, part of the fence is cut across one of the university playing fields, and they've given the soccer field to Mexico. So, you know, uh, if the fence will work, great, you know, I'm all for it. I don't know that it will work. It doesn't seem to be working. And if you go into those regions, you'll see that there's there's no way to, to build fences up and down mountain ranges. I don't know that that can happen. So I'm I'm curious to see how this will play out. Um, you know, there's a lot of work going on with the virtual fence, which I think is very interesting. Part of the problem they have is is immense environmental damage that's happening because mm-hmm. of the walkers, and even more so because of the cars. And in some regions in Arizona, they're they're messing around with these car barriers. Because the problem is if you put up the fence, then it stops migration of animals uh-huh. and you'll lead to an ecological disaster on that level. But these car barriers can't be dug up or moved and nothing can drive through them. But they have gaps wide enough for creatures to pass through. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. And then you know, sensors, infrared, watchtowers, uh drones. I mean, there's a lot of stuff one can do. Um, You know, I I feel bad because I I always see the Border Patrol agents assaulted from the right and the left Mm -hmm. both. And they're, they're not often honored for, you know, their insight. And we always talk about, well, we need more Border Patrol agents. But just think, since I wrote my book, there were 32 guys there when I wrote it. In the Welton station now, there are 300 agents, more, I think maybe 320, jammed in that station. They had to build a new station. There are lots of Border Patrol guys coming. But the issue is a huge one and the landscape is a rough one, you know. So it's very difficult for those agents to cover it. Yeah. Now,
0: the uh, the, the writers of the title for your presentation, tonight used <laughs> immigration yeah. in the title. Right. And, uh, you know, you mentioned before, if you were king, what you would do. If you <laughs> Have you thought much about if you were president, oh, what you Lord. would do about the, about the issue of immigration? And, and obviously that's a huge issue. But— but you know, you just mentioned a few things that might work. But I mean, what what's sort of your take on on this great know, big immigration issue?
1: It's it is such a, an overwhelming and baffling topic. Um, I've actually I have a blog at my website. Um, w- w- most of the week I spend talking about writerly stuff and yeah. poetry and blah blah blah. But um, on Mondays I, we put up a, a, an immigration Monday, which is sort of like my electronic immigration newsletter. Um, And it's been interesting because I've had Border Patrol agents write essays. I had the Mexican Consul General write an essay on immigration and I try to make data available, pro and con. My main issue at the moment is that I I like to say in this country, there's a lot of inflammation and no information, (laughs) you know, and believe me that part part of what's going on is an information war. And that we choose the term illegal alien. You heard Dennis Kucinich maybe last night on the debate chew out Wolf Blitzer because Wolf Blitzer asked him, you know, give illegal aliens, driver's license or not. And Kucinich said, I reject your definition. There's no illegal human being. They're undocumented, which I thought was interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, for example, people – I have heard Lou Dobbs for a very long time talk about all the illegal invasion, but I've never heard anybody define for the American people what the legality is. What is the law? What kind of law is it? Where can they find that law to study it and see what what the issue is? I think those things are interesting. I would like to – I would love to see, for example, a a bipartisan commission like the 9-11 Commission. To study without fear or favor, you know study the issue and try to deliver straight talk to the american people i 'm trying to find it myself, so you know on the blog, for example, every week, I try to put as many websites as I can find again, pro or con it doesn 't matter to me uh, i I want people to be able to defend their position intelligently. Um, you know, I always tell people on the left there 's nothing wrong with. Worrying about your nation's security for God's sake, you know, and people on the right are often much more willing to talk than people on the left. So I just want to I want to be a bridge and try to get everybody talking.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, I want to go back to to writing and actually storytelling. Yeah. <clears throat> and if you don't mind, I want to ask you about your experience um, with NPR. You've been uh, mm-hmm. there's a whole you have a whole list of NPR credits, including <laughs> a this American life. Credit. Oh, yeah. What was the What was it like doing a story for this American life? Could that you talk was about that? very interesting.
1: Um yeah there there, there it, they came to me there was a a radio producer who came to me who wanted to record my various shenanigans and try to put together this american life story <clears throat> and we didn't really know what ira would find interesting or not um and so I, I have this this thing since i've done so much work on the border that i often lead these safaris of people into my friend Sherman Alexie once said, you know, it's, it's dances with Mexicans, he called it. You know? <laughs> but, uh, you know, take people into the garbage dumps of Tijuana or someplace where they would not be able to go otherwise and look around. And so they followed me in. And and the hook for this story was that there was a, a woman living in the Tijuana garbage dump that I had known since she was six years old. And uh, she was now grown up and we'd lost each other. And so we went to find her with this microphone trailing, And it turned out to be this— Remarkable, unexpected gift. In that I found her, but I had my boy with me, my my white, you know, teenaged boy, and all of the little girls in her house. Since we lost sight of each other, were now these unbelievably gorgeous, hot, teenage whatever. You know, all like they'd gone from little girls to a house full of JLo's, <laughs> and these JLo's swooped on my boy. And took him into their embrace and took him into the, their world. And so it turned out to be this piece about finding out what their world was like and how it affected him. Mm-hmm. And uh, then there was a lot of trouble editing it and Ira was just – he and his team came in and just took it and put it together and they were awesome. You know, they were Really nice, you know. They're they're very personable folks. He was a lot of fun to hang out with, mm-hmm. and the show has, you know, it's on the archive. People listen to it. I still get mail about it. Mm-hmm. What, so
2: what's it archived as? Do you know?
1: Yeah, it's on thislife.org, and uh, when you go down the archives, there's a show called Trash, and so he he, you know, he's he's Ira Glass. So it was kind of a funny show where there was garbage picking, recycling, and then my story, and he. <laughs> I don't know what got into him, but in his little spoken intro, he called it uh, "in spite of the smell." I think I love you. I think this is what he called it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, "Wow, that's not what I would have called it." Yeah. But <laughs>
0: we have about three minutes to go. No, know. really? Oh wow. yeah, we're, yeah. We're we're whipping through this hour. Um, I wanted to ask. Uh, about other authors that you'd like to read who would oh, you re- who, do you recommend people David Sedaris was here recently and oh he he's always, amazing and isn't? he always recommends wow let's authors. recommend
1: David Sedaris <laughs> yeah uh, you know I read so much and I love so much writing I, I you know who can't you recommend my friend Stuart Onan is yeah. an amazing writer he's got a wonderful new book out I love mysteries uh-huh. I like to read James Lee Burke very much yeah. you know I love poetry I read lots of poetry um the, the coolest thing for me doing this is that more than a, a pro writer, I'm a fan. Mm-hmm. So I get to meet people. You know what I mean? Yeah. I get to meet writers. And uh, it, that's the best thing because then I get all these signed books from everybody. You know?
0: <laughs> is there a, a common denominator among these writers that we hear about all the time, the ones that you meet?
1: Uh, uh, there's, there is one that lots of them are jerks. But uh, oh, Sorry to hear that. <laughs> but it's true because we give the best that we've got to the page often. But the people who aren't jerks are just amazing. You know, we, we, my wife and I got to spend some time with Jane Hamilton recently and just in love with her. She's so amazing. And Frank Delaney, the Irish writer, he's an incredible. John Connolly, the Irish mystery writer, also an incredible guy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's exciting to be around people who are wrestling with the world and making something amazing of it to change your life, you know? Mm-hmm.
0: Do you have a, a list of, uh, like,
1: things you'd like to work on in the next three oh, four years? Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I'm under contract to do the sequel to Hummingbird. I'm finishing a novel now. After that, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is yeah. that a
2: lot of pressure when you're under contract to do something?
1: Uh, no, it's a relief because I spent really? I spent a lot of years, you know, with nothing but minute rice to eat. So <laughs> it's nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Now, you're
0: going to be speaking tonight. I want to mention again um, Luis Alberto Rea is going to be speaking at. The Buzzkirk Chumley Theater at seven o'clock tonight. Uh, the talk is called "Magical Realism, Immigration, and Life on the Border," but we're not really sure what he's going to talk about. So, well, you want get... to talk
1: about all those things. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, Give a little preview. To... Yeah, yeah. In the next minute, we have one more minute. So. Well, I can't help but like I told you, you know, I'll be talking about m- not only my life experiences but my writing experiences, and there's no way to escape all of those topics mm-hmm. when you talk about it. But it's really, you know, it's really uh, a, a talk about the daily sacred. Yeah, and we've talked
0: uh, he, in here a little bit uh, during the break mm-hmm. time about some uh, musical interests. That we have. So maybe you'll yeah. be talking about that. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> it, yes, Luis lived in Lafayette for a time, but it was Lafayette, Louisiana. Louisiana. We're, we've we've discovered that. Well, we want to thank you very much for <laughs> being thank here you. today. The time really flew by. Really. It's been a lot of so fun. So I hope that people will go tonight to the Buzz Kirk Chumley because uh, I guarantee you you'll have a good time listening to Luis Alberto Urea for Mary Catherine Carmichael, uh, Producer Catherine Hegeman and Engineer Mike Bashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening.
3: Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org.